Please sit comfortably, everyone. Some good, long, silent sitting tonight. The title of this talk tonight is Embodied and Disembodied Buddhism. It's a bit of background. I've been reading some interesting um, books on Zen and Buddhism recently. They're not the type of books which are um, the usual type of um, self-help type of Dharma books or even traditional books. They're actually more of a um, a philosophical commentary on um, how Buddhism is coming to the West, um, looking at it within its historical context and the cultural context and how it's shifting and changing. And um, so it's, if you're interested in reading them, it's not the kind of book which is kind of like a self-help, giving you ideas about how to practice, but it's more of an overview um, from a philosophical point of view. Um, two books in particular, um, one is called Buddhism and Human Flourishing, uh, a Modern Western Perspective, and that's written by um, Seth Siegel. Um, Seth is a, a, a Zen priest, a clinical psychologist, um, works as a chaplain in a hospital, um, peace activist, so a person, and about my age, person a lot of different life experiences. And Seth was actually the, one of the people who was the peer reviewer of my article, which is getting published next year. And also the other book I'm halfway through, which is rather interesting, is called Why I'm Not a Buddhist. And it's by um, Evan Thompson. And Evan is, uh, as he states, is actually very sympathetic, empathic um, with Buddhism and is uh, a participant in the Dalai Lama dialogues on Buddhism and science. Um, but uh, he gives his own reasons as to why he's not a Buddhist from a philosophical point of view. Um, there are some people who would state that there is a true Buddhism um, <clears throat> or some versions of it which are truer than others. Um, the fact of it is, is that the Buddhist teachings from what we what I've read were not actually written down until about two or three two or three centuries after he died, and we think of Pali as being the um, the original language of Buddhism. It's perhaps not even the language that the Buddha spoke in. It was the language in which it was written down. So when it's an oral tradition and then it's actually written down as to what people think is true Buddhism. Um, you know, what is true? What can we say is true and what is false or what's truer to the tradition? Um, it certainly would seem that what is, what is consistent with it is that it's a meditation tradition and it's an insight tradition. But what is true about it, I don't know. Uh, what Seth also says is that one of the consistent differences between Buddhism as it's come West compared to Oriental Eastern Buddhism 
is this is a, this very the, the vast majority of people who would identify as Buddhist practitioners in in the West don't believe in rebirth, and they don't believe in karma in the sense of a moral law during the world which will then shape the way that you're reborn, etc. Um, there would be some people who would believe that, some people who are agnostic, but the vast majority of people who practice in the West don't have that view. So there's a transition occurring between cultures, but there's nothing new about that. Um, Buddhism has always been rather fluid, and it's and it's changed and been and shaped with with every every culture that it's been in, in China, um, in Tibet, in Korea, in Japan, and now here. And one of the things which is perhaps um, uh, culturally relevant in in a western culture is that buddhism and i would have been an example of it the buddhism integrating with psychology and integrating with science in some way and i know at least in the zen tradition there are many 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 zen teachers who are psychologists and counselors who work in the mental health field because there's such a an overlap um, between the two I must say that reading um, Seth's book um, felt very validating for me. I can't remember all of the various different points that he raised, but I thought, yes, that's that's the way I teach as well. I, can, I really could identify with the various styles and views, um, which are probably consistent across the same tradition in the West. Now. Some of the points that these writers make is that there is one view of Buddhism or an early view of Buddhism and and one which is still there in some of the traditions that the Buddha was some kind of exceptional superhuman type of person and that he transcended all suffering and, and somehow floated free from it, you know, was outside of the cycle of, of birth and death. Um, the Mahayana traditions of which Zen is a part of that tradition don't have that same view. Um, and that view, the challenging of that older Buddhist view, is very clearly there in the Zen koan that I talked about last week, Chakajo's Fox. And here we have, um, again, to remind you of it, a monk asking a Zen priest, does an enlightened person come under the law of cause and effect or not? The priest answers, such a person does not come under the law of cause and effect. And in the whimsical Zen way, he is reborn 500 lifetimes as a fox. Uh Very, it's a very interesting story. I keep coming back to it. Um, again, if you look at that, it's challenging this view that there is some kind of disembodied, pure consciousness that you attain through doing meditation, that that's what the Buddha attained, and somehow this disembodied, pure consciousness floats free. Where it goes to, I don't know. It goes into the universe, whatever. I don't know, because I haven't experienced it. But in the Zen tradition, 
it's not about disembodiment. The whole koan is about embodiment. The priest had to go through 500 lifetimes as a fox, in a fox body, you know, eating and killing animals, mating, you know, eating, shitting, doing everything that an animal does, being in a, in a body, and to fully embrace that. Mm-hmm. And also when we come to, say, Haku and Zenji's song of Zazen, it ends with those wonderful lines at the end. This very place, uh, this very, um, this very body is the Buddha. This very place is the Lotus Land. Or words to those effect. Always comes back. Zen always comes back to embodiment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I. I can't relate personally to an idea of a a Buddhist practice, which is some kind of pure consciousness, which floats away somewhere, you know, which is disembodied. It's simply not any part of my own experience. So I couldn't validate or teach something like that. Something similar is something else is different in Mahayana and, and Zen practice as well. Um, I don't know much, very much about the yanas, the stages of meditation that um, that people go through or conceptualise they go through in the in the Theravada Vipassana tradition. But as I've been told, they they talk about going through an experience where there's no sensory input, some kind of pure conscious state that you go to or you aspire to. Um, it's not part of the teaching of Zen, Zen, Zen experience. There's always sensory experience. You're always embodied. There's always sensory experience. You're not disconnected from it. You're not disconnected from the world around you. Mm-hmm. So there are various different traditions and people choose, you know, their, their own versions of Buddhism. But as these writers say, and which I've always sensed myself, um, no one can really claim to have a true Buddhism. And it, it has a feel of being kind of a bit fundamentalist. And I'd have to say at the end of the day that I don't know. I don't know what is true bit of Buddhism or false Buddhism. I know that meditation is very, at the very core of what it is and the Zen tradition um, um, tries to follow the experience of the Buddha himself. He studied various scriptures and he was an ascetic and then he decided just to sit under the Bodhi tree until he had some kind of insight or awakening into recognising that he he woke up from a self-centred dream and the Zen tradition tries to follow that, that practice um, as closely as we can. Um, but to make any claim of it being truer than anything else it's not a place i really want to go to Uh Um, there's just the the commitment commitment to one's own practice to really move from um recognizing that we all we are caught in a self-centered place all of us to some degree and through this practice we move to a more altruistic way of being in the world and it's not really inconsistent with a lot of our 
own Western traditions. You see that in Greek, the Greek philosophy of Aristotle, for instance, and you see it embedded in the values of major Western religions like Christianity, even though the theology may be different. But there's a, there is a, a waking up into something that, that's larger than just me um, and more of an embracing of all existence and all beings rather than being separate from them. And that in very much is the, is the essence of the practice, regardless of which, tradi which tradition it may be. So um, tonight's talk is a little bit more philosophical. Um, but uh, anyway, they're the books I'm reading at the moment, which I'd like to share with you.